If you want to turn in your Bibles or flip on your phones to Acts chapter 8, we are going to be looking at the first eight verses this week. This book of Acts is a continuation of the story that started with the birth of John the Baptist in the early pages of Luke. The author is Luke, and he, he is uh, writing down the story of the things that happened surrounding Jesus. John was the herald of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, whose words he, we already read in the opening uh, responsive reading from Isaiah chapter 43. And the book of Acts is Luke's commentary on the final scenes of his gospel account. What happens? Uh, sorry, what does the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ mean for humanity? Already we have seen the good news about Jesus demolish intellectual and religious strongholds. We have seen the power of Jesus over the devastating sickness, devastating effects of evil spirits, and over the crippling outcome of disease and sickness. We have seen economic strongholds tumble as entire groups of people shared their possessions and held everything in common. We have seen common fishermen become fearless in the face of great personal danger because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And in the words of Bachman Turner Overdrives, we ain't seen nothing yet. In the coming weeks, we're going to see the gospel's power over magic, its ability to tear down cultural strongholds that had stood for over a thousand years. We're even going to see teleportation for those Star Trek fans in the audience. And as this story of Luke comes to a close, we will see the gospel having made its way to the center of the Roman Empire in the person of the Apostle Paul freely speaking the word of truth, as he, as Luke records at the end of the book, for two whole years Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Today, however, we are in the early part of chapter 8, and this represents a critical moment in the early church. Up until now, they have been centered and focused on Jerusalem. But in a few short moments, the story of the good news about Jesus Christ will start its journey outward from Jerusalem toward its final destination in Rome. You'll notice at the beginning, this man, Saul, is giving approval of the execution. If you were here last week, or if you remember the chapter before chapter 8, you will know that Stephen, one of the deacons of the early church, has just been stoned for speaking up on behalf of the gospel. What he said infuriated people so much that they dragged him outside the city and stoned him until he was dead. And this young man, as Chris pointed out last week, was on the scene, the the man whose name was Saul. Who was this guy? Um, Most of what we know about him comes from his own writings, because, as you know, uh, the This man, Saul, eventually became the Apostle Paul and penned most of what we have in the New Testament. But this man, Saul, was born in Tarsus, which is an area in Turkey. So if you just look at Jerusalem at that end on my side of the the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and you just go a a wee bit north, you'll find Tarsus in uh, Turkey. Uh, Saul had Jewish parents. It says that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, so he had Jewish parents. But his parents had Roman citizenship, which at the time was a very coveted thing because it gave you all kinds of privileges in the Roman Empire. 
Uh, Saul says that he was raised in the city of Jerusalem. I think he moved there at a young age with his parents. And he was uh, apprenticed under a man named Gamaliel, who was uh, basically the Ivy League of rabbis. This was the guy who everyone wanted to study under. In Acts chapter 5, we've already met this man, Gamaliel, and it says there he was a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people. Um, so this is the man, Saul. He was, you just, you got to think of him as the, the golden boy. He's the privileged one. He's got all the things in his life going for him. He's raised by a good family. He's got the, he's got the heritage. He's got a tribe of Benjamin. He's a Jewish person. He's got the Roman citizenship. He goes to the best school. He studies under the best teacher. And he was zealous for what he did. So this is Saul. He is standing there as Stephen is being stoned and approving of the execution. I want to point out that this uh, execution of Stephen by the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling uh, Jews at the time, the rulers of the Jews at the time, was almost as if like a dam broke in the persecution of the church. Up until this point, there hadn't been as serious a persecution of the church. There was some things happening. If you remember a few, few of the moments where Uh, the church was persecuted. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were arrested for preaching in the temple. And what happened there is they got taken to jail, and then the next morning they got a tongue lashing from the Sanhedrin, and then they got let go. It wasn't super serious. I imagine spending a night in jail wasn't great, but nonetheless they went off unscathed. In Acts chapter 5, we see all the apostles arrested. And all of them thrown into jail. And the next morning they get pulled out in front of the Sanhedrin. And this time they get a tongue lashing. And then they also get a beating as well. They get flogged by the Sanhedrin. And I want to point out that up until this point, the the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jews at the time, had kind of been sort of stepping lightly around these new people on the scene, these Christians. Uh, Acts chapter 5 and verse 18 It says this, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. And then again, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 26, then the captain with the officers, this was after the the angel had broken them out of jail and they went back to the temple to preach the good news again. They go and arrest, no, they don't arrest them actually. They go and they bring them, but not by force, for they are afraid of being stoned with the people. So you see sort of what's happening. The, 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 The ruling elite at the time don't like what's going on with the apostles, but they're not quite ready to sort of really make an all-out stand against them. They just keep kind of bringing them in a little bit and telling them off and then letting them go again. But that's not the case anymore, is it? Because today, in our chapter, we see there arose that day, as I said, there's like a dam that broke. Something happened after Stephen was killed. There arose that day a great persecution against the church. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Saul, the man we talked about already, was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this is a a turning point. All of a sudden, it's okay to persecute Christians. Saul, in a a couple of chapters, is going to go and get a letter 
from the Sanhedrin that says, yeah, you can go and outside of Jerusalem, find Christians wherever they are, and just take them and put them in jail. This is a, a turning point in the persecution of the church. I want to make one small comment about uh, verse 2 there. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. Again and again, we see in the face of the church's persecution, the fearlessness of the apostles and the believers. Uh, It doesn't really indicate here um, what I'm about to say, but apparently if you read the commentaries, it is the case that it was illegal to mourn for someone who is a convicted blasphemer, which, as you remember from the end of chapter 7, was what they had accused Stephen of. So devout men, the apostles, the Christians, made a great lamentation over this man Stephen. And that would have been another thing that would have been illegal, another thing to bring persecution on them, and yet they didn't seem to mind. They weren't afraid of the persecution. So what's the result of the persecution? Well, the the Christians scatter from Jerusalem and go and find a place to hide and try to weather the storm. Or did they? No, they didn't. They didn't go and find a place to hide. What caused... They they went and they started preaching the gospel wherever they went. It's it's like you see, you open up the ant's nest and the ants just kind of scatter with all their their good eggs or whatever they got in in the nest, and then they go off and they take and make a hundred new nests. Just like that. The apostles apostles stay in Jerusalem, but everyone else is scattered. And and when they go, they don't stop doing what what has been causing the persecution. They continue to preach the good news. I wonder if we could just pause for a moment and consider what caused them to have no fear. I mean, they had just witnessed, or at least heard about, a man who was killed because he had been preaching this good news. And instead of going and hiding, they go off and they continue to preach the good news. What was it that caused them to have this no-fear attitude? I mean, it's the good news itself, isn't it? These people had come into contact with an almighty creator. They They had met the person who had created the world, who, as we sang, created the forest glades and the streams that ran through, who was the one who designed your your human body, who made this marvelous thing, your hand, who created your eyes, your mouth, so that you could speak. This same creator God who had created all the stars, which our scientists are vainly trying to count in the universe. They're beyond count. This incredible, massive God who was not only uh, a creator, but also someone who wanted to actually know these people personally and was willing to go to great lengths to bring those people back into his presence because they had run away from him, as each one of us has done. This same creator God who, uh, who, who could not stand sin in his presence, had gone out and reached out to his people and brought them back. This was the good news that caused these men and women in the early church to have no fear. They had experienced this for themselves, and they knew, without a doubt, that it was far better to be in the presence of this God than 
for anything else in their lives. And they were willing to give up everything as a result. We also meet a man named Philip who went to Samaria and preached the word there. And the crowds, it says, listened with one accord. Samaria was a a town just south of Jerusalem. Uh, This was the center of the region of Samaria, um, which contained the people called the Samaritans, which, as you know, or may or may not know, um, was uh, people who were in great opposition to the Jewish people. They were sort of, the Jews looked at the Samaritans as uh, like the bastard stepchild of the Jewish nation. They were the ones that were rejected. They had not followed the laws of God. And so to to associate with the Samaritans, to even talk to the Samaritans, was something that you didn't do. And Philip decides he's going to go down there. And what are the results of his preaching? I just love the results of his preaching. Crowds, as I said, paid attention to what he was saying. Unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Isn't that incredible? Have you ever thought about what it would be like if there was someone in our audience who was in a wheelchair and then they just, after 40 years of sitting in a wheelchair, got up and started walking again? How absolutely incredible that would be? Or someone who had been possessed by an evil spirit and had been tormented all their lives and all of a sudden they were free? I think we, we don't think about these things enough because it just it, it's not in our in a, it's not in our in our mind. We've never really seen this. We've never really experienced this kind of miraculous thing. And I love that the apostles or Luke writes writes this down for us so that we are reminded again of the God who we serve, the God of the miraculous. For him to make a man who is lame walk again is nothing. Our God is able to do it. Do you believe that this morning? Our God is able to take someone who has no vision in their eyes and make them see. For he made them eyes who, uh, that were in that person's head. I, I think it's good for us to remember these things. Even if you don't see miracles in your life, it's good to remember that the God you serve can do them. Because as you're planning your life, as you're dreaming up what you want to do in order to spread the gospel, you need to realize that there is nothing you can dream up that is impossible for God to do. I'm not saying he's going to do all the things that you dream up because maybe they don't accord with his plan. But there is nothing that you can dream up that our God cannot do. So I encourage you, I challenge you this morning, dream big. Think of things that God, you you would be amazed if he did. And then ask him for those things. As I say, he may or may not answer. His answer may not be what you expect. But please, don't forget that our God is a God who makes the lame walk and the paralyzed to be able to move again. So, as I've said already, the result of this persecution is that the gospel begins to spread throughout Judea and Samaria. I want to pause for a moment And consider this as a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. In Acts chapter 1, the beginning of this book, and verse 8, Luke records the last words of Jesus on earth before he was taken back up into heaven on a cloud. And he says this, it's a command and a promise. 
the command and the promise. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Sorry, I didn't include the command there. The command was stay in Jerusalem until you receive the power. And the promise was you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is the promise of Jesus to his apostles at the end of his stay here on earth. Where are we so far? So far we're in Jerusalem. All the action in the book of Acts has happened in Jerusalem. And here we see the next step in God's fulfilling this promise. I wonder if you think that this fulfillment of God's promise looks like what you expected it to look like. If you were a person living in the early church and you had heard the promise, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, would this story be what you dreamed up? You know, you're just talking about dreaming up big things for God to do. Would this be what you dreamed up for God to fulfill his promise? Would you sit there after Jesus had been taken into the heavens and say, you know what, I think he's going to uh, kill some of us and persecute the rest of us and put us in jail, and that's how he's going to fulfill our, his promise. I certainly wouldn't have thought that. I would have sat down uh, with my pastor, Albert, and tried to come up with a plan. Okay, we gotta, he promised that we're going to do this. Let's, let's plan. Let's see if we can get a budget to get some money so that we can do some stuff over in Malawi or whatever it is. We make plans. We don't think that God's going to answer his promises in this way. And yet he does. I had the privilege of, um, on Sunday night, going and listening to Dr. Gerald Griffiths. Um, some of you who have been to Leeside for many years know he used to come here and preach. Absolute favorite preacher ever at Leeside, with apologies to everyone who's ever preached here. But <laughs> the man is amazing. He's, uh, he's, he's a great preacher. His wife, Kitty Ann Griffiths, is with the Lord now. But his wife uh, was responsible for uh, something called Bible Stories Alive, which I'm not sure. I, I remember one story. We had one story as a kid, and it's like burned into my brain because it was so vividly told, so amazing. I'm planning to buy a whole bunch of them for my kids when, uh, at some point. I haven't done it yet. So this ministry, Bible Stories Alive, she's got uh, 74 CDs, so that's like 60 minutes each, of stories available on her website. These stories have been translated into 11 different languages. They're broadcast. I looked at the list. I was going to start counting the radio stations, and I gave up because uh, it was long. There's hundreds of radio stations around the world that broadcast these stories. Kitty, Kitty Mrs. Griffiths, had received mail from over 188 different countries uh, during her time uh, doing this story. This, the, the ministry is still going on. The amazing thing to me uh, was when Dr. Griffiths explained how the ministry started. He was on the radio. He had been asked by the pastor of his church to start a radio ministry. And the radio ministry was going to be him preaching the message, and they would put the message online, and there would be some announcements and other things. And so the first day came and went, and Dr. Griffiths was there preaching the message, and he made the announcements at the end, and it was all great, and everyone was happy. And his wife turned to him at the end and said, Gerald, 
you forgot the announcement about the women's meeting. <clears throat> and so Gerald turned to his wife and said, okay, next week, why don't you do it? And so next week she did. And one thing led to another, and someone heard Mrs. Griffiths give the announcement, and she did it by telling a short story. Uh, it was like a two-minute thing, and someone heard that and came and t- said to her, we need some more of this. And one thing led to another, led to another, and led to another, and eventually we have this ministry, Bible Stories Alive. But do you, did you catch how it started? It started from a mistake that Dr. Griffiths made. That was the beginning, like we have this morning. This is the fulfillment of God's promise, someone being killed, people being put in jail, people being beaten. This is the fulfillment of God's promise. I don't know if you've ever heard, you probably maybe have, maybe haven't, of a man named Nate Saint. Nate was a a missionary pilot, and he was involved in establishing contact with this warrior tribe of uh, people in Ecuador, the Waodani tribe. And he, and amongst he and a few other guys, I think there was five of them. Uh, Jim Elliott was one of them, who's a, maybe a more famous name than Nate Saint. He was, uh, he, they were all trying to make contact with these people. But no one had done it yet because this was a tribe of people that lived on violence. Uh, they're basically, the life expectancy was less than 30 or something like that because you were most likely to end by getting stabbed by a spear and uh, you never really... Uh, grew up too much. So they had, they had all kinds of systems for contacting these people. They started off with physics. So they had a, uh, Nate was a pilot, so they got a really long rope and they put a bucket on the end of the rope and they put some stuff in the bucket and then he would fly a big circle around where they were. And I don't know if you know anything about physics, but the bottom of the rope doesn't move as much as the top of it. So they could basically get the bucket to stay in the same spot, and the people at the tribe would pull the stuff out and put some other stuff in. So that's how they made contact originally, and it seemed to be going well. So then they landed on a strip of land next to the river that was close to these uh, missionaries, and there's uh, transcripts of the radio radioing back to the base camp where their wives were, saying, we're really excited. They came out this morning, and tomorrow they're coming out again, and we're going to meet them all, and this is, it's going way better than we could have imagined. Unfortunately, um, due to some lies and things inside the tribe, what happened instead was that the uh, Waodani Indian uh, people came out and speared these five men. And they eventually found all their bodies washed down the river. And all of these men died. Now, Nate had a son named Steve. Steve, as if, if he was going to live by the Waodani customs his responsibility would have been to avenge his father's death. He was only nine at the time, so he probably wouldn't have done it right away. But his responsibility would have been to avenge his father's death. Instead of doing that, Steve moved in with his aunt, Rachel, Nate's brother, Nate's sister brother. And they lived with the Waodani people. And as a result of that witness and testimony, many of those men and women came to know Jesus Christ. Steve had a long and um, troubled life, away from the Lord, came back to the Lord, and eventually went back to the Waodani people, the people who he grew up living amongst. And the man 
who was responsible for his own father's death, found him, came to him, confessed his sin, and asked for forgiveness from Steve. And you know what that man's comment was to Steve? He said, there have never been so many grandfathers in my tribe. Because grandfathers were a thing that didn't really exist in the Waodani people. Because they were all killed. Because you killed my dad, so I'm going to kill your dad, so you're going to kill my dad. So then, and there was a cycle of violence. But as a result of these people's testimony and witness, the Waodani came to know Christ. Does that seem like the way that you would plan to bring a tribe of people to Christ? It doesn't seem to be the way that I would plan these things. What I'm trying to say is that our expectations of the way God works in our lives a lot of times don't line up with the way he works in our lives. In this chapter, we see a prime example of God working and to fulfill his promise in a way that we would just never expect. Are you looking for the promises of God to be fulfilled in your life? What are you looking for? Are you, are you, are you, are you ready to give up any preconceived notions about what it might look like for God's promise that he wants to use you as a witness to the good news about Jesus Christ? I want you to consider that God might be able to take one of your greatest mistakes or he might be able to take one of the most tragic, dark moments in your life and turn that into a triumph that you could never imagine. As I said before, this is the God we serve. He is able to take these dark moments and turn them into triumph. In reading to prepare for this, I read a lot about the persecution and the discussion of the persecution. And there was an argument about persecution. There was a whole uh, side of the argument that says persecution is the necessary fuel for the spread of the church. The church father, Tertullian, who wrote in the second century A.D., said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And many have taken that as, as a truth, that in order for the church to spread, there must be persecution. On the other side, people argued that, well, maybe it's more the case that when the, the witness is faithful, then the church will experience persecution. So that if we are doing our job and speaking the good news about Jesus Christ and people are understanding it, persecution will happen. But as I was preparing the message, I don't want to really focus on either of those because both of those things focus on us, the church, how we're spreading, whether we are doing the things that we need to do. But what I want to end with this morning is that we just cannot miss God's ability to take a dark and terrible situation and bring good out of it. This is the God we serve. You notice at the end of this section, verse 8, you notice what Luke records? So there was much joy in that city. Remember at the beginning, there was godly, devout men lamenting the fact that Stephen had been stoned because it was a terrible thing, worthy of lamenting, mourning over this man who had been killed. And yet, they knew or at least they were about to experience that the God they serve could take that dark moment and turn it into an entire city full of people who are joyous as a result of coming into contact with the gospel for the first time. 
This really shouldn't surprise us. The fundamental cornerstone of our faith is the murder of an innocent man. It was literally the darkest moment in human history. Literally the sun stopped shining as Jesus hung on the cross. And can you imagine the millions upon millions of people who have experienced joy as a result of that moment? This is the God we serve. He is able to take the darkest moments and turn them into great joy. As the Apostle Paul saw here at the beginning of this chapter, the Apostle Paul eventually wrote this down. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Some of us may not see the joy in this lifetime, but one day we will stand in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and our joy will be full, and we will hardly even remember these dark, tragic times. If you're a Christian this morning, remember the God you serve. Remember this God who can take anything dark and terrible and mistakes and whatever you regret in your life and turn it into good. And if you're not a Christian this morning, come and see. Come and meet this amazing Creator God because He wants to meet you. Amen.